All right, so we're looking at the book of 1 John this spring, and uh, I like 1 John because it talks about how God's love comes down to earth, how, how when we experience God's love, how we're touched by God's love, it begins to touch and change us and transform our lives and the way we approach life. And now we're in uh, John, 1 John chapter 2. You can follow along in the program. It's in that little loose sheet there. We kind of overloaded the program this week so we couldn't get everything to fit and still make it uh, uh, real for people like me who are vision impaired. So, so it, it's in that little, little uh, flyer there. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Hear God's word. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you might not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, also for the sins of the whole world. This is how we know him. If we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him, and yet doesn't keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his, command, his word, truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know that we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as Jesus walked. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you've had since the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard. Yet I'm, I'm writing a new command, which is true, true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in darkness walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he's going because darkness has blinded his eyes. This is God's word for God's people this morning. Perhaps you can relate to me, I think, in life. Sometimes we tend to go between two extremes. On the one hand, everything's going well and everything seems to be working and we feel like we're we're grounded and healthy and happy and we're doing good and we're feeling good and we're giving and God's giving back to us and, and uh, you know, we know we sin but God forgives us and, and everything's generally okay because we feel like we're, we're kind of at the top of the curve there. But then if you go along like that, occasionally we all hit a wall, it seems. We hit a wall and we descend into a sense of despair and it seems and seems thing goes right for us and we can't do what's right and we try to pray but it seems like God is not listening or not able or doesn't care to hear our prayers and and we're confronted with how deeply flawed we are and have to wonder if God is really going to be there for us at all and so I think what I want to show you today is a third way, a way that's between the extremes of just complacency and despair that comes as we learn how to rest in God's grace, way of grace. And it starts, starts by understanding the heart of grace and God's grace for sinners. John said, says, I'm writing this to give you an incentive not to sin, but I know that you do sin. So he's realistic. You know, he, he introduces this 
passage and, and throughout the book of First John, he says, he, he, he's talking, he says he's talking to his dear children. And the reason he says that, not my brothers and sisters, is because this is one of the last things that was written for the Old Testament. It was written probably when John was uh, uh, about 80 or 85 years old. That's what uh, scholars think. And so almost everybody in the church he was writing to, to and something this for was much, much younger than him. And as I heard say... Recently, it's pretty hard to find an idealistic 85-year-old. You know, <laughs> that, that gets beaten out of you by that by that point. But but he has hope nonetheless. He says, "I write this to you to give you an encouragement not to sin. But when you do sin, remember, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not just for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. What he's saying is, even when we do find ourselves falling and falling and falling and failing, we have an advocate. We have someone who will leap to our defense. We have someone who's got access to the judge who will speak on our behalf. We have Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and we can count on him to represent us. We can count on him to plead our case. We can count on him to, to defend us even when we ourselves are indefensible. And not only do we have an advocate, but the advocate has a case. He has a case to make. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sin, and not for our sins, sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. The whole world's our advocate can be on our behalf Yes, they've made a mess, but the punishment has already been meted out. The fine has already been paid. And so they can be justified on the basis of that and on the basis of that alone. The penalty is paid in full. The sacrifice has already been made. The punish punishment has been delivered. And so justice has been satisfied. So therefore, you can have mercy on them. And... So what does Jesus plead? His plea is a cross. He himself has already paid for our sins. This is the hope and the promise and the, the ground of the Christian life, the fact that, that atonement has already been made. You know, the Christian life, other religions tell us that we've got to come to God and bring a sacrifice. The Christian faith is that God has already brought a sacrifice and it's up to us simply to depend on the sacrifice that's already been made. And, and it's important to keep that in mind. You know, popular piety, sort of general spiritual but not religious uh, world, world view is that, well, you know, we do, nobody's perfect, but God is forgiving, and so it's no big deal. We should just, just uh, accept that. But what the Bible tells us is that, yes, God is forgiving, but it was incredibly complicated for God to forgive. It was incredibly difficult for God to give it, it, forgive. It was even painful for God to forgive. I mean, the whole Old Testament lays out this process of uh, God electing a certain group of people, and then they build a tabernacle that becomes a temple, and he, and he sets apart a whole subsection of the uh, population of Israel as priests that that offer sacrifices and is in this bowl so that to give people a picture of the complexity of God's forgiveness. And then in the New Testament, we see all of that pointed to Jesus coming and being born on the first Christmas, dying on our sin, dying for our sins on the first Good Friday, and then 
rising from the dead on the first Easter and that providing ultimately the basis for the satisfaction of our sins and the forgiveness of God. So what the Bible tells us, in contrast to kind of pop, pop spirituality, is that for, forgives, yes, God forgives, but it was difficult, it was painful, it was complicated, and it involved the sacrifice of God's one and only Son. So that's the weight of forgiveness, but that's also the hope we have. Because yes, God forgives, but it's not something light and trivial. It's something expensive and difficult, but he did it for us. And to be a Christian is not to necessarily, it's not defined by us making sacrifices to God. It's defined by us depending on the sacrifice that God made on our behalf. It's not defined by us obeying God as much as it's defined by trusting in the obedience of Christ for us. It's not defined by us serving God. It's defined by us resting in the fact that the king of the universe became a servant to wash away all of our sins. That's what it means to be a Christian. And if you get that, if you embrace that, that gives you in your life a a spiritual depth, a spiritual ballast that enables you to, to... weather the storms of life, because the storms do come, right? And we have those times, seems like nothing is going right, and we can't do anything right, and, and, and it seems like our life is, life is apart. But the invitation of the gospel, I think it's summed up in an old Baptist hymn that came to my mind this week, where that says, I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That is enough. If any of us do sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Believing that is the heart of the faith. It means we don't have to defend ourselves anymore. We have an advocate. We don't have to... to, to, God God doesn't miss us for our sins anymore. The sins have been paid for by, by Jesus. And the solution for us is not something that's within us. It's something, it's, it's in the one that God sent to save us, our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's, that's, the, that's the heart of grace. It's grace for sinners. But now I want to show you how that changes us. How does that come down to earth in our lives? And, and I think you've got to understand the power of grace is, is that, that, you know, as, as someone has said, faith that God saves us by faith alone, but, but that saves is never alone. We have when we truly believe in this, it actually changes everything in our lives. And so to, to embrace this for yourself is to recognize that this, this is actually the key to, to life change for all of us. It's more transformative than anything else because the power of love and grace in your life will make you into a different person as you get it, when you get it, and as you go on your journey deeper and deeper into your understanding of God's grace. Uh, and and it's, it's all about understanding that God's, God's uh, God's favor is a gift, not something that we earn. And uh, and I, I think that this is why understanding grace always leads to a higher commitment than, under, than, than, than believing that it's by our own works our own, or our own effort that we experience 
God's favor or, or repair our standing before God. I'd illustrate it this way. All of us have had the experience of, of making a major purchase of something over the year. Maybe a house, maybe a car, maybe, maybe just, just something else important that was a significant investment for us that we wanted. When, when you have that uh, responsibility, when, you when you're going through that process, what do we all try to do? We all, you know, we shop around, we do our research, we, we, we uh, look at our options and try to figure out how we can get the best bargain, right? Because no one wants to overpay for their new car or their new house or anything like that. Because when you're purchasing something, you always want to pay as little as possible. And so here happens, and, and I've noticed this mindset over, over the, for people who think, who have a mindset, and, and they might they might be nominally Christian or nominally Muslim or nominally uh, Buddhist or whatever, but it comes down to, well, I, I just want to be a good person in order to earn God's favor. What do we all do? Is we bargain with God and say, well, how exactly do you define good? And most of us think we're, you know, 90% of us think we're better than 90% than of the people in the world, right? Because we all, we all see ourselves that way. And so... So what we all do is, is we bargain down exactly what the standard is we've got to, to, to meet and, and make it, to make it more, more and more manageable. And so, so people who, who uh, have a mindset, I've, I've observed people who have a mindset that they have to earn their salvation or God just wants us to be good, always define goodness as easily as possible to create as much buffer as possible. And it's the same thing with work. When you have a task to accomplish, if you have to paint a wall here, you'll find the easiest way to do it, right? And so if you, have, if you, have a, if you weren't going to paint this wall here and you have a choice between using a 12-inch roller and a 2-inch brush, you're going to, to use the roller and get it done as soon as possible. Because anything we're working for, we want to we accomplish as easily as possible and in, in as little work as possible. And so if you're working for your salvation, if you're working for God's approval, if you're working for eternal life, it's inevitable that you're going to, to ask yourself the question or have the mindset, what's the least I can possibly do in order to accomplish that, in order to receive that? That's just, uh, I mean, at least that's the way I am. I'm speaking for myself. Perhaps you can relate. But the thing, when, when you realize that your relationship with God is not based on the work that you do for God, but based on what God has done for you, and it's not based on the sacrifices you make for God, but it's based on the sacrifice of God's one and only Son, and it's not based on your good works, but it's based on His righteousness credited to you, and it's all a gift, and it's all by love, and it's all by grace, and there's nothing you can do to add to it. You just simply need to receive this grace, and it's free to you, but it's not free because it's cheap. It's free, free because it's so expensive that you couldn't possibly afford it, and so therefore you only can receive it as a gift. If you believe that, if you receive that, then that has to change your life. Then that does change your life. Because see, when we're motivated by, when we're just trying to, to uh, accomplish a task for, for a job that we're doing, we always want to, to just do that task and no more, right? But when you're motivated by love and by gratitude, then all of a sudden the boundaries disappear here.
You know, if you're invaded by, if you're just purchasing something, you think, what's the least I can do to get the thing that I want? But if you've fallen in love with someone, you can't ask the question, well, what's the least I can do to maintain this relationship? That relationship's gonna, not, not gonna work out that way. Um, and so the response to God's mercy, the response to God's love, the response to God's, God's grace will always be a boundaryless commitment to him, will always be a higher level of devotion to him. Like it says here, this is how we know that we know we keep his commandments. Our, our response of, of compliance to his will is, is a response to his mercy and a response to his, his grace towards us. You know, and, and, and so when we find ourselves saying, what's the least I can give and still be a Christian? What's the least I can serve and still be a Christian? What's the, what's the most I can sin and still call myself a person of faith? Then the reality is when we're thinking like that, we're not thinking like a person of faith. We're not thinking like, like a person who's experienced amazing grace. We're not thinking like someone like who's been touched in that way. Because the response of God's love and generosity and mercy to us will always be showing mercy towards others. Another hymn puts it this way, Jesus paid it all, and so all to him I owe. And sin left a guilty stain, but Jesus washed it white as snow. And that's the, the promise of the gospel. That, that's the power of grace in all of our lives when you, when you begin to get it. So the heart of grace, the work of Christ, the power of grace as it changes our life. But now I want to talk about the test of grace. And the test of grace, John, is simple. He comes, comes again and again. And it's simply this, love for our neighbor, love for people around us. Verse, look at verse 9. It says, the one who says that he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. So what John says here and in other places is how you treat your neighbor, how you treat those closest to you, how you treat the actual humans in your life is going to tell, tells God and tells you, you how you really see God. Okay? The, the, the real te test how you see God is not how you sing at church or how religious you are or how pious you are. The real test of your commitment to God and your, and your connection to God is going to be defined by how you treat everybody around you. And that's, that's the challenge for all of us, I think. You know, there's a direct correlation between how you think about God and how you treat your neighbor. And the Bible says that over, over and over again. And so, you know, what that means is the difficult people in life. How many of you have difficult people in your life? Some, some of you of you won't admit it because they're sitting there next to you, but that's okay. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, the difficult people in your life are actually an opportunity God gives you to exercise supernatural grace. Uh, and, uh, but but to, to understand that, and to understand what that means and how that works, one of the things you, you need to understand is that when we talk about love, when the Bible says, says love your neighbor, it's talking about something totally different than what most of us have in mind when we think about, think about. You know, we think of love in, in our modern world, we think of love we've been affected by, by, by sort of that, that romantic ideal and, and love, this feeling that come on us, you know? 
I can't fight this feeling anymore. I've forgotten what I started fighting for. You know, you know that, 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 that's, that's what we think love is. But when the Bible says love, you got to understand, across the board, when the Bible says love, it's, it's talking about something completely different. And until you understand that, you don't understand what the Bible's saying when it says, when it says, uh, says love, love your neighbor. Um, perhaps uh, the best story I've heard that illustrates is a story about a man who went to see his, his pastor. And his pastor was a, was a different guy than I am. But, but uh, the, the, he says to his pastor, you know, pastor, you got to help me. I don't, don't love my wife anymore. And the pastor says, okay, I'll help you. Repent. The Bible says Husbands, love your wives. And he says, oh, Pastor, you just don't understand. It, 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 it's really been difficult lately, and, and, I, and we're just really not connected anymore. I just don't, don't feel like, you know, the spark is, is just gone there. I, so I, I just don't know what I, 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 how to handle this. And the pastor says to the guy, well, so is your wife still, you guys are still uh, close close to each other. He's like, well, yeah, we're still living in the same house. It's just that, that, that the relationship seems to be over. You know, there, there's, no, there's no real romantic connection there anymore. And so the pastor said, well, would you say that your wife has become kind of like a neighbor to you? And he said, yeah. And so the pastor said, of course, well, the Bible says, love your neighbor. And so the guy says to, to the pastor, he says, but pastor, if you understand some of the things she's done to me, if you've understood some of the way she's treated me and some of the way she's hurt me, you'd understand that, that there's just so much, so much animosity there, there that I just can't do this anymore. And so the pastor says, would you say your wife has become almost, almost like an enemy to you? <laughs> the bad news is Jesus said, love your enemies. <laughs> and so all that to say that when you think about it, when the Bible says, Love your neighbor, love your enemies, love, love, uh, you know, husbands, love your wives, and everything else the Bible says about love. It's talking about something completely different than what we hear in the pop songs and what we see illustrated in, um, in the movies and in our culture. It's, it's talking about, what, what is the Bible talking about? It's talking about a mindset, an approach that desires to, to, to create the best for everybody around us, whether that's the difficult people in your building or the difficult people in your office or the difficult people among your friends or even the difficult people in your church that you have to deal with. It, it's having a mindset that I'm going to do what will lead to their flourishing and their prospering in, the, in, in whatever way I, I can. But at the same time, the Bible makes it clear, clear that times to love somebody means you've got to say no to them. It doesn't mean, mean that you've become a, a doormat to the whims of, of other people. Uh, like the Bible says clearly that parents who can't say no to their children actually don't love their children. Because part of love and part of, part of wanting the best for someone often is saying, being willing and being open to uh, saying no to a person. And, and I know... Some of you in here have had the experience of trying to help or love somebody who was addicted to, to, to drugs or to alcohol or something like that. And, and one of the most disorienting thing, things to realize in those, those relationships, when with someone who's on, on a self-destructive path, is, is that you've 
the, the only loving thing you can do sometimes is to say no to somebody or even to cut them off from the relationship if necessary. Not because you don't care about them, but because you do care about them and so you can't enable them to continue on a path toward, toward destruction. So, so, so to put it positively, love is always working for and wish for and willing for the best interest of the people around you, whether it be your friends, your neighbors, your family members, or people like that. And like I said, God in his grace, sometimes to test us and to push us to go deeper in life, he surrounds us with really difficult people. Really difficult people to love, difficult people to get along with, difficult people to work with, and it makes us wonder, how am I supposed to love these people? What, what does it mean even to love these people? You know, he puts those people in our, in our offices, he puts those people in our buildings, he puts those people in our family, he puts those people in our church. But every time that ha happens, an opportunity, when you think of those people in your life, we all have them, it's an opportunity to remember that I don't love these people for their own sake. I don't love them because they become lovable to me. I love them for Jesus' sake. I love them because he loved me. I'm committed to them because Jesus is committed to me. You know, when you love the people in your life who are lovable, then it's not really love in this biblical sense. It's just a reward. You know, you love them because of what they give to you. Biblical love is sacrificial. Biblical love is exemplified by our Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. And that, from the Bible's perspective, is the pinnacle of love for us, and it's also the model of love for us. But... The reality is in all of our life that God puts impossible people in our life. And sometimes, for many of you, you are the impossible person. Just keep that in mind. <laughs> I'm not going to mention any name, names. You know who you are. Uh, you are that person who's, 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 the, who's the evil person. And, and so we all have ample opportunities to fall short of the, vibes, the Bible's ideal of loving our friends, loving our neighbors, loving our brothers, loving our sisters. And that's all well and good because that sends us right back to the beginning. My little children, I write these things to you so that you will not sin. But when you do sin, remember, we've, we've got an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. So, Father, we come back to the promise and the picture of ultimate love. Our Lord Jesus Christ, his sacrifice for us, his suffering for us, and his grace for us. I pray that... Uh, even as we look at the challenges that we face and the challenging people that we're surrounded with and the challenging people that we are oftentimes, that you would help us ultimately to see in each one an opportunity to exercise and act out your love and your 
sacrifice and your devotion to us. We make this real to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're going to serve the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a tangible and physical reminder of the nature of God's love for us, that God loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so, so Jesus established the Lord's Supper as, as a sacrament that reminds us of how that works and how, how we make that real. In Matthew 26, Jesus sat down at, at the Last Supper and says, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples. And he said, take this and eat it. This is my body. Then he, then he cup, and after giving them, giving them, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. This, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What makes Christianity unique among religions is that rather than it being based on sacrifices we bring to God, our Christian faith is based essentially on the sacrifice that God has made for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And our status before him isn't grounded in what we have given to God, but ultimately it's grounded in what God has given for us. And our work is simply to live, live at trust in him. So if you are a believer today, we want to invite you to participate. If you're a member of, of this church or any other church, but if, if you haven't yet come to embrace this hope for yourself, I would just ask that you use this as a time of silent reflection. We'll have uh, everybody come forward to receive the elements. I'll have some people assisting me in that. And... Um, and just come forward as you feel led. We'll be we'll we'll start with uh, the worship team. Let, let, let's, Father, I thank you for grace of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, and I pray that you would help all of us to lean into His grace towards us as we face our own fears and failures. We ask in Jesus' precious name, Amen.